You've tuned in to the Locum Story Podcast, a place where we interview physicians, PAs, and NPs from all different specialties and backgrounds about their careers, tips for success, and of course, locum tenants. Learn more about locums at locumstory.com. Welcome to another episode of the Locum Story Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to discuss an important skill physicians can use building a rewarding, successful, and long-lasting career, how to negotiate a contract. It is not a skill usually covered in the medical residency, but it can make all the difference. To help us dive into the topic, we are excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Linda Street. Dr. Street is a board-certified maternal fetal medicine specialist and founder and CEO of Simply Street MD Negotiation Coaching. Dr. Street is also the creator and host of the podcast, Simply Worth It, which focuses on helping doctors understand their value and negotiate for the contracts they want. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Street. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat about one of my favorite topics. Awesome. Likewise. Let's begin by talking about what Simply Street uh, MD Negotiation Coaching is. Could you give us an overview? Yeah. So a lot of it is really just giving both the tools and the confidence to negotiate because a lot of us are socialized even long before we're in medicine, not to advocate for our own needs. Especially I focus mostly on women physicians. Like this is built into your DNA when you're like five. People are telling you, oh, don't rock the boat or, oh, just sit over there and be quiet or no, it's okay. We'll get that later. And no one focuses on, I think in medicine, especially that like, this is your job. And at the end of the day, while it also may be a calling, you have to be compensated fairly. You need to feel valued. It needs to be worth your time to engage with whatever particular employer. And it's mostly a mindset piece more than it is that you need any special skill sets. But if you can't even start the conversation because you don't believe you should be paid or you should ask for that because it's greedy or whatever other thoughts you have about it, you're not not even opening the door, let alone walking through it. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Great, great overview. Was there any sort of like specific experience that led you to start the company or was it a culmination of a few different things or factors that you you saw? Yeah. So I think most of us fall into these type of roles because we did it wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, I learned from this. Maybe someone else can learn from it without going through all the nasty pieces beforehand. So in my first job outside of fellowship, I really didn't negotiate very much. My partner at the time was senior and very experienced and was like, oh, this is a great deal. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I signed the contract. I needed to be in that location for family reasons. There weren't a ton of positions available in that location. Actually, there were one. Hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll sign the contract. Sure. And mind you, I did this at the end of my first year of a three-year fellowship. So I had two years to go and I just signed it, thought it was good and rolled with it. I showed up in the job and then found out that there were several things that were not as glamorous as they had seemed as a PGY-5 making like 50 grand a year or whatever it is I was making at the time. And so the things that seemed so mind-blowingly wonderful when you're in a training position and just having time to like breathe seems Mm -hmm. really exciting were not quite as wonderful when I started talking to other people who had jobs that were a little better. And the straw that really broke the camel's back for me is I worked in a state position. So you could actually look up everybody's salaries on the internet. It was accessible. And my partner was making 150,000 more than me. Wow. And he had some responsibilities and he had a lot of seniority and should have been making some more than me, but our clinical responsibilities were very similar. And so $150,000 was a lot for 
a little bit of administrative responsibility and other things. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that there's currently a stigma with the medical profession about negotiating contracts? You kind of touched on that. I think it goes both ways. I think there is a little bit of one from a hierarchical kind of intent. So a lot of us grow up in these training programs. We all start in academics because that's where they train you. And I think it serves them if they're hoping to train you and then retain you to disempower you a little bit. And I know that sounds terrible, but I do think that there is a little bit of, uh, well, you should be in this for the love of medicine, or you're training the next generation. That should be compensation enough, or other disempowering kind of statements that happen on the sidelines here and there. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, messaging I heard, I actually started in academics. I'm no longer in academics for various reasons, but a lot of other things I heard to some of my co-fellows who went out into corporate medicine or private practice was, oh, that's not as good as academics. Like kind of like academics is the gold standard and anything Mm -hmm. else is not kind of the gold standard. It was less than. And so I think there is a lot of kind of messaging that's not directly like you shouldn't ask for what you're worth, but nuances things to where people feel like there's a barrier to that. And then the companies obviously benefit from keeping pay as low as possible because in a for-profit model, there's X amount of money coming in and they are happy to have a bigger piece of that pie. So whatever they give you takes away from that pie. If they can limit that, then that serves them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunate, but true. Yeah. I think you're, you're completely right there. So walk us through kind of uh soup to nuts. Like at what stage in a physician's career, do you think that they should start negotiating contracts? Do you think that's right out of residency or do you think that's, you know, after some experience or what's, what's kind of the experts take there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think right from the get-go, your yeah. strongest position of leverage is before you've started a job because they're incentivized to recruit you. Good point. Most of us are in positions where there are wider needs than there are physicians to fill them. And so while they need you and don't have you yet, you have the strongest leverage because Mm -hmm. it's a lot more activation energy to leave a job for a better job. Not that it doesn't happen. And most of us will leave our first job within three to five years. So certainly it happens often, but the barrier to leaving is high enough to limit some of your negotiation power Mm. versus when they have a desperate need and need someone to fill it, Their pain point is large enough that you oftentimes have a lot more leverage at that initial negotiation. And most of us are doing that initial negotiation coming straight out of training. So all of Mm -hmm. us will have a first job. Not all of us will go on to have a second or a third or a fourth. Many of us will, but not everyone. And so I think you need to start then because if you can lay a really strong foundation, if you do decide to stay in that job, you're at least not starting behind the eight ball because often- all of your subsequent negotiations are going to be layered on top of whatever you started with. You're going to either get a 3% raise or a 5% raise, or you're going to ask for 10,000 or 20,000, but it's going to layer on top of wherever you began. And so if you can be strongly, you're in a better position kind of going forward forevermore. I love it. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. What, what do you think are some of the ways that physicians can prepare to negotiate a contractor? Is there any kind of like gotchas or things that you would advise people to look for either in their their first contract that they are being offered or you know subsequent offers there yeah so i mean i think the first piece is the mindset right like you have to decide i am providing a skill what i provide is a value and i should be compensated for that so i do think you have to believe that you do deserve what you're going to ask for you have to believe that shooting for above average isn't greedy Like you have to believe that there are reasons why 
you should advocate for those things, especially if you're asking for something that's a little different from money, right? Mm. Money is kind of the thing we think about most easily when we talk about these conversations, but there are a lot of other things people ask for as well. And you may get barriers like we've never done that here before, or we haven't done it this way before or whatever. And if you can kind of jump over that by saying, just because they haven't done it, doesn't mean it's not doable. And I understand that it's not been done this way. However, this is why it's still advantageous to you. If you can kind of set your mind in that position and kind of in that mindset, it's a lot easier to catch them up to where you are. But if you believe you should have it, you're really going to struggle to get someone else to give it to you. Totally. Yeah. Makes sense. That's the first spot. I think the second thing is also being realistic. And I don't mean that to cut anybody off at the knees by any shape or form, but having some market data, like knowing kind of what are people paid in my specialty in this region and Mm -hmm. having a broad base of kind of a range of expectation. Now you may fall on the high end of the range. You may fall on the low end of the range because there are other places where value is compensated differently than money. So that can look like time. It can look like working from home because it's more convenient. So you don't have to commute. It can look like a million different ways, depending on what your goals are and what their goals for you are, but making sure that you have a broad base of, okay, what are people typically paid for doing what I do in this setting, in this region of the country? Because if you don't know that they could be offering you something terrible Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, this feels so good. Or they could be offering you something fantastic and you're like, well, I should just ask for 10 more, 10% more just for the sake of asking right. for more. Right. And you can really burn that bridge at that point because you're not looking at it from the lens of, okay, this is a 90th percentile salary. Maybe I should focus on something other than money to make this a really mind-blowing package or That's why great. Yeah. I'm offering that from the get-go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Great point. Yeah. It, kind of looking at it from the, the, the inverse perspective of this is, this might be too good to be true. Right. 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 And just asking those questions and it may not be, I mean, how wonderful if people just came forward with their best foot from the get-go, but oftentimes that's not the case. So if sure. it is like, why is that? Is it yeah. because the need is so pressing and you're such a perfect fit or is it because there are red flags and they're mm-hmm. having a hard time retaining people? Mm-hmm. And those are things you need to ask and investigate so you can improve the sustainability of whatever you agree to. Is there a, a data source that you trust to kind of look at what that uh, average pay is for a specific region or a specialty or anywhere that you would guide some of the listeners to get some of that info? Yeah. So there are several different things. Um, in academics, AAMC is a big database outside of academics, and it actually sometimes has some overlap as well. There are like Sullivan Cotter, MGMA. There are several different data sets that are really reputable and large. By default, they tend to make those um, expensive and difficult to access for physicians because the people feeding into these databases are the corporate employers and the large employers who don't benefit from you being kind of well-educated. You can access these things through other companies and consultants. That's something I use MGMA is what I use with my clients, but that's one tier. The kind of going down from there is like Medscape they'll publish some data based on survey information. So instead of it being from like W-2s and 1099s and official records, it's from word of mouth. Like people will answer a survey, say what they make. It gives you a broad idea. So it gives you a starting point. But if you really want to get very specific, I think talking to your peers and nobody likes to talk about money. It's a big hang up for a lot of folks, but talking to other people who do what you do in that vague region is a good way to get some real data points. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have kind of that more nuanced, holistic picture of, okay, this is what their job looks like. And this is what they get paid. Cause all these data yeah. sets give you numbers. 
Um, but I think the other thing you can do is interview at multiple places. If you have yeah. several offers in a three hour region or whatnot, you have real data points to kind of compare against to say, okay, like this is what this person offered. This is what this person offered by the gap where the discrepancy. Yeah. Maybe I like this job better, but they offered 10% less. Can I get them to where this other contract is and still have the other things that make this job a better fit for me? Yeah, great. That's that's excellent. You, you've kind of touched on this, but one of the questions we jotted down here was after a physician receives an initial offer, how should they go about starting the negotiation process? Process. I kind of like what you've touched on previously in terms of, you know, look at the look at the package and look at look at where it is in that range. A any other tips that you would say like it, uh, maybe red flags or green flags to look out for? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends a lot on what you want. I always think of jobs like shoes. Everybody has different favorite favorite pairs of shoes. And what fits me well and is comfortable for me is probably not what fits you well and is comfortable for you. But it has to fit you. Because if you wear a poorly fitting pair of shoes, it'll eventually rub. And it may be terribly uncomfortable from the get-go, or it might be terribly uncomfortable three months down the road. But mm -hmm. it's going to rub wrong if it's not a good fit. So I think you have to look at the whole picture from the context, and hopefully you've done this ahead of time, of what is ideal for me. What would I like? What is important for me to have? And so I think you really need to have figured out what your goals are before you go in. So you can kind of compare, this is my ideal. Like if I could invent a job and just dream it up, this is what it would look like. And this is what they're offering. These are the places where it's not matching. How can I negotiate those things? So I think having an idea of what you want first kind of helps you know where to go from here. But to open up that conversation, I think that a good way to do it in a positive light is to say, you know, this is a great jumping off point because you don't want to insult the original offer. Yeah. Um, so this is a great conversation starter. This is a great jumping off point, whatever feels kind of comfortable for you in your vernacular, but something to the effect of we're starting the conversation and this is where I'd like to go. Yeah. And you really need to have, I always think of two different numbers in your mind or two different um, parameters in your mind for whatever pieces are important to you, whether that be schedule, whether that be compensation, whether that be um, your full-time equivalent distribution. If you're in a position where it's not just straight clinical, um, mm -hmm. like how do, how do your days look? You should have kind of a base minimum or a bottom line, like in order to consider this job, I need these things. And those are non-negotiable. You have to have them. If you don't have them, it's a terrible fit. The shoes are like three sizes too big. You're going to fall on your face. It's a terrible plan. And so you can negotiate really hard for those things because if they say no to them, like you're going to walk away. It doesn't yeah. matter. Like it's not a deal. And then the second set of things you should consider are if this was ideal, if this was perfect, what would it look like? Mm -hmm. And those numbers are hopefully going to be further apart. Parameters are going to be a little further apart. And the kind of high expectation goal is what I call it. Like the dream job parameters should feel a little bit uncomfortable to ask for. Because if it doesn't feel a little bit uncomfortable, it's probably not aiming high enough. Mm -hmm. You're probably kind of shortchanging yourself because we all feel pretty comfortable pushing for a little bit more sure. or saying like, okay, I'd like to be at the average or something to that effect. Like that doesn't feel super uncomfortable for most of us. I want you to feel a little uncomfortable because if you don't feel a little uncomfortable, you're really not pushing the envelope and you may be shortchanging yourself from what you yeah. could have. And so you want to focus on those two different parameters, mostly putting your attention on the high expectation goals, but noticing like, okay, I have to have at least this. Otherwise it's just a no. Yeah. And really going after those at that point. And I would, I would initially say, this is a great jumping off point. 
I was really hoping to get closer to, or these are the things that make me a great fit for what you're looking to achieve in this role. In order to do that, I need X, Y, Z. Yeah. And presenting that high expectation set of parameters. I really like that, Dr. Street. I think what, what's going on in my mind is maybe concoct in your mind what a, an ideal job offer looks like before getting any sort of offer and then bump that against, you know, ideal or dream or minimum requirements. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think a lot of us just feel like, oh, it's a job. Medicine's trash today. It's all gotten terrible. Like I just have to take what I can get or yeah. some other defeatist position, or yeah. this is much better than residency. I'm sure it'll be fine is another sure. one that I hear for people who are going for their first job. The second job is always like, oh, it's going to be terrible anyway. Um, and not that everybody thinks that way, but those themes come up often enough and are spoken commonly in Facebook groups and wherever physicians meet yeah. that I think we really need to reevaluate, like, look, this is, yes, this is a job, but it's also a career and a calling. It's kind of all yeah. these things depending on who you are and where you're at in your career. But that doesn't mean I have to be miserable. That doesn't yeah. mean I can't look away that serves me as well while I'm taking care of patients, while I'm doing whatever your goals and reasons for doing your job are. Because at the end of the day, it is a job and you mm -hmm. have to be compensated for your work. Like I'm not going to go volunteer at Starbucks. They're a for-profit company. It would make no sense for me to volunteer right. to coffee unless right. there was some other thing like, hey, we're going to donate to your favorite animal shelter. And then I might be inspired to, you know, sure. I, mean, I don't yeah. know. They're going to have to compensate me somehow. And your physician job should be no different. Like unless yeah. you're going to volunteer for a charity where you're really getting some type of value in a non-financial way, like this is a job. They're making money off of you being there. You need to be compensated. Yeah, absolutely. Those are really good call out. So I appreciate that. When thinking about uh, contract negotiation, maybe a lot of people may immediately think about compensation or pay negotiation. You mentioned a few other factors, like what does the schedule look like? What's maybe uh, administration look like? Any Anything else that you uh, ask your clients or you yourself consider? Yeah. I mean, I think there are endless examples depending on what you want. I always think of needs as like a pyramid and a hierarchy and money is actually the bottom. Like money okay. has to happen. It's part of it. It's a job. Like it should be exchanged. But at the end of the day, I know a lot of physicians who left jobs and very few of them left based on money. Okay. So money might've played a role and money might've been a catalyst, but typically the money piece can be negotiated in a way that an agreement can be met because yeah. the negotiation, like the definition of negotiation is simply a conversation with the goal of making an agreement. And usually the money piece can come to an agreement, I'd say the vast majority of the time. So that's important, but it's not the end all be all. The reasons I see people leaving job are the time piece, which is kind of the next place, and then the energy piece. Mm -hmm. And time I think of as like, what does your schedule look like? Is there flexibility in your schedule so you can be a human? Because at the end of the day, like, yes, your career is to be a physician, but you are a person. Like yeah. you're with various needs and outside commitments and priorities. And if those aren't met, it's not sustainable. You're not yeah. going to stay this job for 10, 20 years if you can't ever see your children. And that is not in line, in alignment with your goals and priorities. Sure. It's just not a good fit. Um, and so looking at your time, not only from a pure like 60 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 40 hours a week, 32, whatever, but also from a flexibility standpoint, because I may be willing to work 45 hours a week if I can do it on my terms, mm. if I can do it in a way that my life can happen around it sure. and things will work. But if there's no flexibility, then I might need 32 hours a week. 
so that I have that extra time where I can be more flexible and make my life happen. So flexibility can impact how much your availability is. And so you got to think about both of those things. And depending on your field, there may be different kind of setups of it's shift work, it's clinic, it's OR, it's hospital-based, whatever. So a lot of that's going to be varied depending on what you do as a physician, because there are yeah. many different ways to be a physician. And then energy is to me the most important. And I think it's left out a lot. And that's the things that light you up, the things that bring you joy. So my personal version of terrible would be if my whole job was sitting by myself, like not interacting with people, interacting with my patients and interacting with people is really, really important to me. So a job where that's not a piece of that is going to be purely a clock in clock out something I'm doing to be paying to be paying my bills. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for me to know like okay, I actually like being in clinic. Surgeons sometimes don't like being in clinic. Like everybody has different priorities, so you want to make sure your job looks like a way that it's meeting your needs, it's meeting your yeah. goals. So say you are a surgeon and you love being in the OR and clinic is just a means to the OR and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just a preference. Then you need to be in a job where you're operating a lot, where yeah. you're able to do that, where the setup facilitates you having good block time and whatever other parameters you need to be successful in that. If you're someone who wants to do research and that's really important to you, and that's a big part of why you became a physician and what your priorities are, you need to make sure you have the support structure to do that, that you have the time to do that. So you're not doing it on your own time because then you're going to start resenting your job because all of a sudden it's your life and not your job. Yeah. And so whatever it is that drew you to your field or lights you up within your field needs to be accounted for when you're setting up your contract so that the job looks like something that also brings you joy. So it's not that's, just a clock in, clock out. That's great. Uh, good, good call out. This, this might be a naive question, but if uh, knowing what fills your cup is kind of interact, uh, interacting with patients and yeah, basically having meaningful relationships there, have you seen within contracts or have you ever negotiated yourself minimum and maximum patients per day? So I have not. Um, yeah think that it is feasible. Um, a lot of times it's not directly put in there. You may do call okay. ceilings is a place where you can put more direct numbers. Like I will not be on call more than one in four. And okay. so that way, if say the group has a mass hiatus and people leave, the hospital is then responsible for filling that call pool or whoever employs you is responsible for hiring locums or for doing whatever so that your call does not exceed whatever that ceiling in your contract is. I see. Um, I've seen it with like asking for certain parameters of a setup. So I'd like 30 minutes with a new patient, 15 with a return or okay. whatever it is you pick, depending on what you do and what's comfortable for you. So those type of things can be written in. They're not typically written in the contracts. Call ceilings can be. And that's something that certainly should be to a certain degree. But the clinic parameters, the more you get in the contract, the more protected you are. Because mm. the more the expectation is an actual legal agreement instead of lip service, everything mm. normal is always kind of up for debate. Good and point. what they sell you when they're trying to recruit you is not necessarily what you'll buy. Um, so I think the more you can get into the contract, the better. And knowing yourself helps to start those things. But it's not unreasonable to ask for. It's not yeah. unreasonable to say, to best care for my patients with this type of patient that I see, I need this amount of time with patients. Yeah. And ask for those things. You might be a total introvert and not want to have face-on-face -face time with people. And sure. so for you, having telemedicine focus, having like there are two days a week where I work from home 
And that's why this is important. Or especially when I see physicians who are like, say, at New York City or something like that, where they're commuting in and they have like an hour long commute, you may say this job will work better for me if I can have two work from home days. Mm -hmm. And I can do what I do from home. This is not a barrier to me being able to meet my job responsibilities. I need it built in to where three days a week, I'll be in person two days a week. I'm work from home or whatever. Yeah. All of those things can be accounted for in the contract. I love that. Is This might be very individualized, but is there anything that you see in generally most physician contracts that you you would say, I make sure that you add X in or take X out. Is there any any sort of theme that is a uh, catch-all gotcha? Like if you're going to start somewhere, make sure you look for this line item. Right. So um, I'm an obstetrician by trade. So tail insurance comes up a lot in my world okay. because I have seen people get struck with six-figure tail bills after being wow. out for a year, uh, which is so insane. Like you can't, you're hostage at that point. Like you can't even leave the job without writing a check for a hundred grand and you maybe earned oh. 200 for that first year. So literally like everything you earned after taxes has to be paid back so you can have your freedom. Um, and so tail insurance is a big one for me. So I like occurrence-based policies is obviously ideal. It's harder to get in some private practice models and things because it's a big expense in a corporate environment or an academic environment. I would say you should not take a job without tail built in. Hmm. In private practice, a lot of times people are pretty reticent to give you a big expensive thing that may only kind of be um, activated if you leave. So I think then you have to do a little more negotiating of, look, I just know life happens and I don't intend to leave, but if something should occur, I want to be protected. So you need to kind of take off that, like, I'm trying to leave kind of perspective from the get-go. But I think there are also middle grounds between, like, it's not covered at all and it's covered some. So um, another way I like to kind of work things where they're like a hard no on just giving it to you, but you're a hard no on the job if you can't have it at all. Um, you can always work some type of tiered approach too. Like if I'm at the practice for two years, 50% is covered. If I'm at it nice. for four, the entire policy is covered or whatever. You can pick percentages and break it down as much as you want. But I think there are ways that aren't just yes or no yeah. that can be considered to help get to a point where it's comfortable for both parties. So I think tail insurance is a big one that, isn't glamorous and is not exciting to talk about and think about, but is an important kind of future me investment so that you have options later if life happens or if the job is a durable fit, you're not just stuck in hostage. The other big thing is non-competes and depending on where you live, they may or may not be even legal. They Mm. may or may not be as easily upholdable. I'm in a state where Georgia lets you have non-competes and it Mm. is upholdable. And it's just playing Russian roulette with whether or not you want to test, are they going to come after me? And so I think trying to negotiate out of a non-compete is ideal. A lot of places are very reticent to do that. So you may be able to shorten the distance, shorten the time frame. Those are ways to kind of get into that middle ground where it's not quite as bad, but it may still be present. I think the other thing is really considering like, okay, is this somewhere that that matters? Like for me, I'm in a community where my husband's from. There are a lot of roots. So for me, a non-compete is a big consideration. I actually did locums for a year burning a non-compete and Mm -hmm. flew all over the place. And COVID happened midway through my year. So it was super fun. I experienced what it's like to have, I can't work within 30 miles for 12 months. Like that's a big deal. I left my four and seven-year-old and my husband for weeks at a time so that I could pay the bills. And so it's a very real clause if it comes up. If you're going somewhere just for a job and you don't anticipate that you have roots there and you think you're going to be able to get up and leave, it may not be as important for you. 
Yeah. But things can change. So I think still it's worth paying attention to and minimizing as much as possible, but it may not be a deal breaker for you in that situation, because if you're going to leave that position, you're going to leave that area anyway. Yeah. You get to decide, but I think it's something very much worth um, trying to pare down as much as possible. Absolutely. Thanks for walking us through all those. I think those are real world good considerations. So this next question, when contracts fall through or negotiations fail, what should physicians next steps be? I I, I want to say, uh, I'm going to try and answer the question first. And I want you to kind of steer it. Um, I would think that you are in such high demand that if a contract falls through, I don't want to say it's, it's a oh, don't worry about it, you can get something else. But yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe walk us through your mindset. If something, if you're, if it's a hard line negotiation, and it's not working, what, how do you advise your, the folks that you work with? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that goes down to, there's a negotiation parameter called a BATNA or best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So okay. the stronger your BATNA, the less it matters if a negotiation falls through. And in a physician job market, the best way to think about that is what is my next best alternative? So I actually left my first job with no backup plan. Um, I had no job lined up. I had 60 days notice to give, so I gave it. And I decided that at that point, it was so unhealthy for me. I didn't really care. I would figure out something. Um, It was a fun decision. My husband, I came home and I think he was like, you did what? (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I just quit my job today. So for me, it was like, okay, like it's so unhealthy that I have to do that. Not the wisest way to do things, but it worked out okay. So your BATNA, mine at that point became locums. So I did travel medicine and I did locums for a year while my non-compete was burning off. And in that year, figured out what I was going to do next. Hmm. I was like, okay, I have a year. So let me figure out my next steps then. And I ended up um, interviewing with the job that I'm in now at some point during that year, that job didn't even exist at the time I quit. Like it wasn't even a job. It worked out really well for me and ended up being a happy ending. If you have those lined up ahead of time, and it doesn't even have to be super concrete. It can be, you know, my backup plan is to look for another position. Like that's it. No problem. I'll look for another job. My backup plan is that I'll do temporary jobs like PRN jobs or locums jobs or industry jobs or telemedicine jobs or whatever in the short term while I'm looking for something else that may better fit um, what my goals are. And so I think it can be as vague as this is a possibility in case this falls out. It could Mm -hmm. be I have a year's worth of savings and maybe I'll just take a sabbatical and take some time off. Like it doesn't matter, but you need to have some plan for if this cannot be negotiated, what am I going to do next? And it Mm -hmm. may be as simple as I'm going to stay in the job I'm in currently for longer until I find something else. Like it doesn't have to be really fancy and complicated and it doesn't even have to be another position, but you at least by having that kind of, this is my next step can prevent yourself from going into this like despair spiral of this fell apart everything's going to be terrible. Like I, now I'm going to be homeless under the bridge. Right, right. Yeah. Great call out. Pivoting a little bit, since this is the Locum Story podcast, it, it, is there anything that you would advise uh, folks look for, for Locum specific contracts or, or Locum's contracts specific, specifically? Wow. Getting that word out was tough. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, well, since, since y'all are through agencies, this is probably not the most popular answer to that, but I think um, prior to letting somebody present your CV, kind of looking at that job and seeing who's presenting it, because they may mm-hmm. not all be presenting it for the same rate. And if I'm doing the same work, I might as well get the biggest cut. Um, so I think shopping around before sure. you allow any kind of semblance of commitment is important. Deciding what you want. 
So in what I do, like some of the jobs had deliveries, some of them didn't. And when I was starting off, like I said, I kind of jumped in head first and was like, Hey, I need some work. So I did some that required deliveries, some that didn't. And I'm happiest when I sleep most of the night. So the delivery encompassing jobs that paid the same as the ones that didn't have deliveries were a lot more um, disruptive to that sleep just sure. by the nature of what they were. And so I learned really quick, hey, if they have availability, I'm going to go to these jobs where I get to sleep all night or where I'm called less frequently or whatever. So you may figure that out as you go, but like knowing, okay, there are three different ways that this job looks doing the same thing with my skill set. What one works for me? Like what one keeps the skill sets up that I want? So the contrary can be true too, right? Like if you're trying to get credentials a year from now and you want to make sure you've had enough of certain procedures, you may need to go to a place where it's a more intensive gig, but it's going to meet that need for you. You're going to have yeah. those numbers. You're going to be able to pull that volume so that you don't have to be proctored when you go to your next permanent job for yeah continue to do that. So I think you get to decide based on what your priorities are, what you're looking for, and then just working with the recruiters. They don't have just one job. They have like 20, 30 different jobs available. And sometimes the most unattractive geographic places, um, no offense to anybody who lives in cold places, but I'm a Georgia girl. So when I went to South Dakota in the winter, I was like, okay, <laughs> I got this. Um, so sometimes going to places like that was actually my favorite because <laughs> people appreciate you being there. Yeah. I was very needed. People were very kind to me. They put me in a hotel that I didn't have to like physically leave the indoors to get to the hospital. Wow. And so there were ways that I could limit the pieces I didn't like, which is being in any weather that's below like 60 degrees by kind of meeting those needs elsewhere. And so really being open to possibilities that might not look like, hey, it's a three-week gig in Hawaii may not actually be the best job. You're going to work. And so while it's super fun to go to places where you otherwise could explore, I went to Montana for a few weeks and it was a blast. We piggybacked with my family coming and going to explore and kind of see things as well. Great. But I also went to places where geographically, it wasn't the most exciting place, sure. but the job was great and they took great care of me. And it was also um, satisfying and a good way to earn an income for a while. Yeah. Excellent call. Closing up here. I want, uh, this has been really valuable and I, I want folks to know a little bit more about Simply Street MD negotiation coaching. Can you maybe give us a few resources or how, uh, how would people work with you if they've uh, liked what they've heard today? Yeah. So my website is simplystreetmd.com and street is spelled just like you live on one, which is nice and convenient. That was part of why we got married. And that's, that's where you find all things that I provide. So I do do pay data. I do do coaching and prep work to help really just support throughout the negotiation, because sometimes just having somebody who's done this a hundred times kind of through others is helpful to know, like, is this normal? kind of normalize the things and just really be a resource. So I do all that. But I think also checking out my podcast at Simply Worth It is a great starting spot that's really low effort. You don't have to talk to any humans. You don't have to spend any money. You can just download and listen to me in your ear and really educating yourself on what are the kind of simple things I can do to make this better for myself? Because it doesn't have to be hard. And negotiation doesn't have to be like something that gives you heart palpitations. Like it doesn't have to be terrible. It can really be simply a conversation with the goal of making an agreement. And yeah. it really just depends on how you approach it. And that can also, I've had some clients that haven't gotten whatever job for whatever reason or whatever promotion for whatever reason, but were considered for something else because of how they showed up. 
Mm. So it can also be a really great way to show up for yourself that may open other doors later, that may open another opportunity. Say you negotiate for something and it's not a great fit. And you're like, hey, you know, I really enjoyed talking to you and you have a great negotiation and they really respect how you show up. If something like what you want opens up, they might call you. So I think it's a way to ask for what you need and advocate for yourself in a way that's um, respectful and owns the value you provide without dickering, without that used car salesman, like I have to have this or else. You can really present yourself as to how you're offering value and helping them to meet their needs and goals and really change the way it has to feel change the perspective that you're going to through it with. I love it. Well, this has been really excellent and valuable. Selfishly, I, I feel like I've taken a few uh, internal notes of how I can better negotiate for myself. So thank you for uh, joining us today. In closing, if you're interested in becoming a better negotiator, be sure to check out Dr. Street's podcast, Simply Worth It, her website, simplystreetmd.com. And thank you, Dr. Street, again, for joining us and uh, talking about negotiations. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. This has been the Locum Story Podcast. To learn more about Locum tenants and find additional provider stories, visit locumstory.com.